Well, this morning we're going to talk about um, how good we have it, so to speak, uh, and how easy it is to forget that um, as we talk about how good the gospel is and how easy it is to forget that, as well as how easy it is to forget that the good gospel is something that we're called to protect. We forget that. We just assume the gospel. We assume it's always going to be there. It's always going to be safe. And yet we're called as Christians, not just pastors, but we're called as Christians to stand up for the faith, for the gospel, to fight for the gospel sometimes, to contend for it. And that's the message of the book of Jude. And so if you have a Bible, you'll want to find the book of Jude. It's the second to last book in the Bible. And in Jude, Jude keeps saying things like, remember, remember, which is to say, don't forget, don't forget. And what he's saying you need to remember and not forget is not only the gospel, the good news about Christ, But specifically in Jude, it's remember that the good gospel must be contended for. The good gospel must be protected. The good gospel must be defended. It must be fought for on occasion. And we forget that as Christians. Uh, We forget that 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 is a calling, that's an obligation. And uh, I hope that by studying Jude uh, in the upcoming weeks, we'll be able to be reminded, to be stirred up, to be um, not forgetful that we we have a fight we're called to be a part of, a good fight, uh, and it's to be protecting the gospel. And so in Jude verse 3... Uh, It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, there's our important word, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And he's going to keep telling us to remember this, to remember this, to remember this. And so this morning what I would like to do is introduce, um, acclimate, get us ready to study Jude. And so as we do that, we're going to be able to, to consider this. As, as we do that, I want to give you eight compelling reasons. Eight compelling reasons actually from Jude, but we're just going to kind of do the big picture overview survey. Eight compelling reasons why we must remember this, that we're called to contend uh, we're called to contend for the faith. And so we'll cover some of these real quick, some of them a little bit longer. Uh, but I hope it's just kind of getting us ready to jump into this call that we have to contend for the faith. You may have noticed in the bulletin, uh, the title of the sermon is Hey Jude. Um, thankfully, that wasn't the offertory. Um, I believe Paul McCartney wrote that song as a comfort to um, John Lennon's son when his parents were going through a divorce. So it has absolutely nothing to do with the letter of Jude. Um, But it's culturally relevant because when you hear Jude, you think, hey, Jude, right? Um, But I thought that so many people take the Bible out of context and misuse it that I would just take a Beatles song out of context and misuse it. Uh, It's just fair game. Uh, (laughs) It's what it means to me. Uh, And Hey Jude is actually about the second to the last book of the Bible. (laughs) The sarcastic humor hasn't changed. Uh, So if you haven't been praying for me, you should be, that I would stop doing such things. Uh, (laughs) 
Compelling reason number one, why we have to remember as Christians we're called to contend for the faith. Number one, we forget that not all who say they're Christians are. We forget that not all who say they're Christians are. Or all who profess to be Christians are. Look at verse 4 with me if you would. Where it says, for certain people... These aren't just concepts that are nebulous or ideas or philosophies. Certain people have crept in. He's talking about into the church, into the church at large, have crept in unnoticed. Well, they're unnoticed because they say they're Christians, right? Who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So they sneak in unnoticed, but they're actually gospel perverts who deny Christ. And you say, that doesn't make any sense. How could you say you're a Christian and deny the truth about Christ? Well, that's why, that's why we're, we're mistaking these people. We think they're Christians. They, they use our vernacular. They use our vocabulary. They, they make a profession. And yet they've snuck in and they're not real. They're not true. And sometimes we forget that. We just assume everyone who says, I, I like Jesus, I believe in Jesus, and they use words like grace and faith and resurrection, well, they're Christians. We have to remember Judas urging Christians like us, there is such a thing as those who twist and those who pervert. So remember that you need to be earnestly contending, not contentious, but earnestly contending. Be vigilant, be sober-minded, be ready. And we need to remember that. Some who profess Christ actually deny Christ. And we'll look at that verse in more detail later, but that's probably enough for now, other than I at least want to ask this question. Is Christianity's biggest challenge outside of the church at large or inside? I hope that gets you thinking. We have challenges outside. But if you read through the New Testament, it seems like the emphasis... Actually, our biggest challenge is within the church at large. You'll be hard-pressed in the New Testament to, to find these kinds of challenges and exhortations and calls to fight the culture, contend with the culture. We expect the culture to act like unregenerate, self-serving people. Because they are doesn't mean there isn't a place to stand up for the truth and do what's right. I'm not trying to make a total either-or kind of thing, but the emphasis in the, in the Bible, and, and, and we get it wrong as Christians a lot of time, we put all our focus on, yeah, everyone who says they're a Christian, they're in, and let's gather together and let's fight. Our, our contending, our battle is really out there. It's no wonder we, we lose track. Here Jude is talking about those who sneak in, but they're actually perverting the gospel. They're twisting it. They're false teachers. So we need to at least be aware that that's the case, and a lot of times we're not aware of that. 
Let's move on to number two, a second reason to take Jude's message to heart. Number two, we forget that such reminders are loving. We forget that the call to contend, to do battle, to stand firm, to be brave, is actually a loving thing. It doesn't sound very loving. I just use the word pervert. And that maybe is offensive to our sensibilities. Not something we should say in church. That, that's, that's mean. That's not loving. Well, Jude used the word. He said pervert, and he used it a little bit differently, but the same idea. He's being loving. God through Jude. In fact, I can prove it to you. Notice what it says in the opening verses, verses 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, so he's not rogue, uh, he's not just the the mean fighting guy, uh, of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Can't wait to talk about that next week. Verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Told you it was loving. I'm going to tell you, you need to fight. And this is God's message for you. And this is super important. And maybe we're going to say, well, then that's not loving. And I just want you to know that this is actually a vehicle for, for God's love to come to you. Not to mention mercy and peace. They're not against each other. They're complementary. Well, more about that another time. A third reason to take Jude's message to heart. We forget that to be for the gospel is to be against perversions of it. To be for the gospel is to be against perversions of it. Now, we fancy ourselves as lovers, not fighters, right? We, we fancy ourselves, and I like to say this, we want to be a church that's what we're, we're about what we're for, not a church that's about what we're against. You know, some of us recovering fundamentalists come out of a background that is, you know, we're, we're, we're all about what we're against. Well, I think we should be about what we're for. We're for the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came here because he loved us when we weren't lovely. And he came here and he did everything right on our behalf as our representative in our place, if you like old old English, in our stead. And he came here and he did everything. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So on our behalf, he loved the Father with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. So that then if he's doing that for us, God would see us that way, perfect, even though we're not. And then what did Jesus do? He voluntarily went to the cross. And this is what we're for, right? This is gospel truth. He did that, and then he went to the cross to be treated as if he never loved God, and as if he never loved his neighbor, that he was the ultimate lawbreaker, even though he was the ultimate law keeper. And then he went to the cross so that he would experience the judgment of God that he didn't deserve, that we deserve, so he would absorb that, pay the penalty. This is good news, as our substitute. And then the victor. The conqueror, he rises from the, he's raised from the dead. He rises from the dead. 
victory, sure, work is complete, work is done, then he ascends into heaven. That's gospel news, good news. That means hope for you and for me, everyone who would ever trust in Jesus. This is, this is awesome. This is what we're for. Right? Man, I haven't got to preach that for like three months, except maybe to my own heart. It's, it's the best. But that does mean by necessity, we're against anything and anyone who would say otherwise. Right? If you say, well, I like Jesus. He's a good teacher. And if you follow his good teachings, God will accept you. I'm against you if you say that. Because that's not the gospel. It's a good idea. It's right. If you follow the good teachings of Jesus perfectly, God will accept you. But no one does. So if you're selling that as the gospel, making people think that they could actually do that, then, then I'm, I'm, I'm against you. I, I'm going to contend because that's not the gospel. Right? Jesus is good. He just didn't rise from the dead. Jesus didn't really die. I'm, I, I'm against you. I, I want to be loving and kind and gracious in a certain sort of way and tell you what's true. But I'm dead sent against you. I don't care if you say you're a Christian or not. In fact, especially if you say you're a Christian, I'm against you. That's what Jude is calling us toward. To earnestly contend for the faith. We are necessarily against something that is in conflict with the gospel. Doesn't mean we're physically violent, just for clarity's sake. (laughs) Interesting, Jude, later on in Jude, uh, we'll get there. Um, This is a big enough deal for him to name call. Unreasoning animals, he calls them. Hidden reefs, twice dead. They're shameful. Grumblers, malcontents, loud mouths, he calls them. You got to do whatever it takes to make it clear they're not with us. And Jude does that. Harsh, merciful, peaceful, and loving, I think is what Jude would say, because that's what he said. I am so for my wife, being my wife. I'm so for Molly being my wife that if anyone would want to take her away from me so that she wouldn't be my wife, I would fight them. And that would be admirable. If anyone would want to try to kidnap my kids and make them anything other than my kids, I would fight them. And that would be admirable. Well, My Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a perfect Savior, saving to the uttermost, who saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'll fight with anyone who says, no, he doesn't. No, he didn't. And that's admirable. It's not mean-spirited. It's not wrong. It's not evil. It's not harsh. I'm for Christ. So I'm against everything and everyone who would offer maybe something else. 
right? Let's move on to a fourth reason to take Jude's message to heart, and that would be we forget that the faith is firstly objective. We forget that the faith is firstly objective. And I just lost 50% of you because you're trying to remember, okay, objective, subjective. Is this a grammar class or logic or... um, don't, don't, Don't check out. We'll see it in the text, I promise. The faith is firstly objective. Oh, first of all, let's see the text. Verse 3 again. Uh, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for, here we go, the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. The faith. Whether it's in the Greek New Testament or your English translation, it's not faith, it's the faith. So it's objective. Okay? He's not talking about faith, faiths. He's talking about the faith. Okay? Um, uh, he's talking about uh, 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 something that's settled and done. By objective, um, something that's historic, something that's complete. How about something that's outside of you? In one sense, I'll clarify this, it has nothing to do with you. Okay? It happened whether you think it happened or not. It happened whether you know about it or not. It happened whether you hate it or love it. It's objective. Uh, Two plus two is four. That's just an objective reality, even if a small child hasn't learned it yet. Or if someone says, actually, it's not that way. It's it's general objectivity. It's just a a true reality. A certain act of history that really happened uh, is objective. Okay? When we're talking about the faith, Jude is talking about something objective. Whether the false teachers say it's not true or not, it doesn't matter. Whether you believe it's true or not, it doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't matter, but you don't know what I'm saying. Okay? It's objective. Jesus Christ, to quote the Bible, died for our sins. Okay? Jesus lived in the Middle East. Jesus grew up in the Middle East. Born in Bethlehem. Jesus was crucified at Calvary. Okay, outside of the city, outside of the city in Jerusalem. It's something that happened. Pontius Pilate was involved, historical figure. These are objective realities. We have to remember that Christianity, the gospel, first and foremost, is an objective reality. And therefore, it can be contended for. We're talking about facts, not feelings. Okay? If it's all just subjective, it's how I feel about it, it's true to me, this is how it strikes me, then if we're going to contend about that, that's just some kind of prejudice. That's wrong. It's not what we're talking about. But typically we think of Christianity because of the way our culture talks and sometimes the way we talk. Faith is this kind of nebulous preference thing. No, Jude is talking about The faith. Theologians will put it this way. The objective body of Christian doctrine. Virgin conception, substitutionary death, resurrection, he's coming again, trinity, that objective body of Christian truth. And Jude says that's what you fight about. That's what you fight about. 
So we have to remember that. And we have to remember when we talk to our friends and we talk to our neighbors, and they probably use faith a different way than we do. And the Bible uses faith in different ways. But here, it's the faith. And that's to be thought about. Okay? Now, but please notice, I said, firstly, I'm so thankful that Christianity is also subjective. It's for us. I should believe in Christ. I can have the joy of the Lord. I can know what it means to be reconciled to God. And this is an experience that I enter into. It's not just objective. It's personal. It's real. I I like it that Jude does, he, he covers that also, not just one or the other. How about in verse 20 of Jude? He, he covers both ends of the spectrum. But it's firstly objective. How about verse 20? But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. It is ours. It does belong to us. Because we're Christians, we belong to that system, if you will. But also, this is personal to me. Because Christ died for my sins. Personal death. Personal work. Holy Spirit's applying it. That's very, very personal. So the feelings are important, and the feelings come. But firstly, Christianity isn't about the feelings, it's about what Christ did, and we have to remember that. In fact, maybe we would put it this way. What preserves the genuineness of the feeling side, the experiential side, the joy, what preserves that subjective side of things? ultimately, is the objective side of things. And if you just checked out on me there, let me put it this way. If the facts aren't the facts about what Jesus did, the feelings are just feelings. So I don't want to contend about the feelings. I want to contend about the facts. We get it wrong sometimes that we want to contend about the feelings. And Jude is helpful in that way, in this way. Let's move on. A fifth reason to take Jude's message to heart. We forget that the faith is not open-ended. We forget that the faith is not open-ended. This is related to what we just talked about. The end of verse 3 says, that was once for all delivered to the saints. Delivered past tense, not open-ended. Once for all, not open-ended. It's the, the... to make up a word, the closedness of Christianity. There's finality. That doesn't mean Christianity's not dynamic. It doesn't mean it doesn't have application that's ongoing. But there's a certain sense of finality. It's not open-ended. Christ is still at work. The Holy Spirit is working and applying the work of Christ. 
He's given us His Spirit, and He will continue to do this throughout the ages. And so it's very open-ended in that sense, right? But it's not open-ended as far as what Christ has done. The once and for all delivered to the saints' faith. Something about it that it's, it's, it, there's a bow on it. And we're protecting it. Saying, don't, don't mess with this. There's not a 2.0. We got the bugs out. Okay? It's not evolving. It's not, pro- Christianity is not progressive in that sense. Now, the application and the outworking and the, and those things, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But there's something about Christianity that is done. Well, don't put God in a box. God put himself in a box. Okay? Not really, but this is, if this is what God did through His Son as the Savior of the world, okay? They're not Saviors. There's only this one world we're living in, and God chose to send His Son to be the Savior, and the Son did His work. It is finished. It is complete, and He ascended. There's a closedness. And by the way, if there, if it were inherently or essentially open, the contending thing really wouldn't make a lot of sense. But because it's finished, we can actually contend for it. We know where the parameters are. We know where the boundaries are. It's important that we remember that. Was once and for all delivered to the saints. Christianity is firstly about what happened so that then actually what is going to happen and what is happening actually has a foundation. Now, is, is new good or is new bad? Trick question, right? The new birth is great. Uh, the new covenant is great. I'm kind of a fan of the New Testament. I mean, there's a lot of new things that are emphasized in the Bible that are, that are really good. New is better than old. Read Hebrews. But new isn't always better. We have to remember that. There's finality to the gospel. Wonderful finality to the gospel. Because it's final, then my dealings with God and reconciliation is accomplished and final. One more thing about that is, we don't only have the raw data Yes, Jesus was a historic person. Yes, he was the Son of God. Yes, he was the second person of the Trinity. Yes, he was crucified. Yes, he was raised. Yes, he ascended. Raw data. And now, boy, it's up to us to try to figure out what it means. It's up to us to interpret it. Jude Jude actually doesn't have that in view. When he's talking about the once and for all delivered to the saints, faith, data, and interpretation. Now, the gospel accounts give interpretation as to what it means. Jesus gives interpretation to what his death would mean. But then his apostles come after him and they hammer hammer it out all the more. 
And so we have Romans, the interpretation of the meaning, and we can know what justification means. We can be declared law keepers because of what Christ did as the law keeper. We can be declared perfect, righteous in God's eyes. How does it happen? Well, that's up to you and your interpretation. No, we have it hammered out for us by the apostles of Jesus so we can have the faith, which includes interpretation, and the way to receive what Christ has done so that you can be declared perfect even though you're not is by faith and by faith alone. It's not faith in works. That's an interpretation. It's given to us as part of the faith. Galatians defends it even more. I really like this one as well. First uh, John chapter 4, verse 10. I'm just using apostolic examples of the faith that interprets. First John 4, 10. In this is love. Now what if that were just open-ended? Well, we could just like, here's what it is to me. Here's what it is to you. Oh, I studied under this scholar when I was at Cambridge visiting. And, and so here's what it meant to them. In this is love. Well, man, we would be mean-spirited if we contended over that. Because who are you to contend with how I think and, and who I stood in under and my feelings and my intuitions? 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Interpretation. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. See, I would have said that we did. I love God so much that He accepted me. Not that we loved God but that He loved us. Oh, see, I would have done it the other way around. I love God and then He loved me in response because I'm good. See, we have divine interpretation as part of the faith. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the example for us to follow. No. To be the propitiation, atonement. The context for that word is always anger. He was mad at us, and he had every right to be. And Jesus was sent by him because he loves us to be the atonement, to be the propitiation, to be the satisfaction for our sins, our rebellion. Wow. How can I know that? It's part of the faith. And if you give me a different version of the faith, those are fighting words, okay? Not physically. We have the faith. Christianity isn't open-ended. It is an application. It is as far as it'll go to every different kind of culture, every different kind of person throughout the ages. It's, but, it, but it's preserved. And we're called to be part of preserving it. Let's move on. Number six. Again, it doesn't mean it's not dynamic. We'll talk more about that. But number six, we forget... God told me, quote unquote, is not standard Christian fare. We forget, God told me, is not standard Christian fare. It's super popular, it's not super Christian. Okay? Jude, we'll get into this later, I need to go fast. Jude is going to get into self-authority. And he, on multiple, multiple, multiple occasions, is going to take aim and contend with those who have self-authority. Okay, I just encapsulated it with that trendy phrase, God told me. And Jude goes after people who base what they believe and teach on their own authority. 
as opposed to apostolic, once and for all, delivered to the saints' authority. Okay? How about verse 8? Just as a, a sample of, of, of fakers. That was a popular word in my house growing up, as a faker. You're a faker. These guys are fakers. Verse 8, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, self-revelation, God revealed this to me. God told me this. Defile the flesh. Reject authority. See, that's what happens. They reject authority. How about verse 16? These grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. This is, this is what I think. This is what I feel. This is what God told me. They're loudmouth boasters. Yeah, they're boasting about what they have that other people don't have. Verse 18, they said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. All of this is in contrast with the once and for all delivered to the saints faith. All of this is in contrast with God's authority in verse 25. I love it where he says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. See, that's where the authority should come from, not from what you're saying you have that other people don't have before all time and now and forever. Amen. It's the once and for all delivered to the saints, faith. We're not looking for the new thing. We're looking for the once and for all thing and, and how it applies. Well, enough of that for now. Number seven, seventh reason to take Jude's message to heart. We're doing eight of these. We forget how wonderful and terrible Jesus is. I'm ranting and raving and perspiring a little bit as a pastor saying, we've got to remember to contend. We have to remember the gospel. We have to remember that it's not peacetime. We need to contend. And, and this is serious and this is an important matter. One reason is... And Judah's going to remind us it's because we forget how terrible Jesus is and how wonderful Jesus is. We'll read the text in just a second, but to set it up, if we remember how wonderful He is, He saves perfectly. His work is done, satisfies the judgment of God. He provides hope, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, glorification, and any other kind of action you might need. He does all of these things. And we forget that. If we remember how great and awesome He is, then any kind of undermining would be things we would say, those are fighting words, you fakers. But we forget that. We also forget how terrible He is. And Jude, on occasion, is going to remind us, He's a wonderful Savior, but He's a terrible judge. Let's go ahead and just get a sample of that in verses 5 to 7. Boy, if we, were, if we remembered this, we, we would warn false teachers. We would not want to be false teachers. Verse 5, Now I want to remind you, I told you earlier, he gives us these reminders, although you once fully knew it. This is so intriguing. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Okay, no 2.0 version. He saved. He can do it. It's so interesting that it says Jesus did that, by the way, in the Old Testament. Might mess with your theology a little bit. Praise Jesus. <laughs> Who saved them out of Egypt? Jesus saved them out of Egypt. Wow, we should remember that. When we need saving, and we do, who, who are we trusting in? The, the God who delivered the people there. 
We forget how great He is. Jesus is the one who did that. But then keep going. He's terrible. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus is the one who destroyed those who didn't believe. And the angels, verse 6, who did not stay within their own position of authority, see, authority is such a big deal, but left their proper dwelling, he, is that talking about Jesus? Has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day? Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. We forget how great Jesus is, and we forget how terrible Jesus is. Number eight, finally, we forget what truly unites and divides. We forget what truly unites and divides. It's a great way to end right here. How about verse 3 again? Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Oh, that's what unites us. Our common salvation is what unites us. That's how we can be united in peacetime. It's how we can be united in conflict. We don't have to fight with each other. What unites us is our common salvation. Just as a little bit of an aside, what unites us is not our demographic. What unites us is, uh, is not um, our common hobbies. Our common... You fill in the blank. Where we live. I mean, what unites us is our common salvation. We're all different. Some of us are weirder than others. Right? Different preferences, different hobbies, different sports, different jobs different kinds of families, different incomes. It's our common salvation that unites us together, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That brings us together. And since we, have, we do have that in common as Christians, we have a common fight. And it's not with each other. It's with all those who would pervert the gospel. And we forget this sometimes. We think what unites us is all that other stuff. It's not. It's the gospel that unites us. It's the common salvation that unites us. And Jude is making that clear to us. And so we have a common enemy, common fight as well. Since we were just there, it's interesting, all that self-authority stuff, like back in verse 19. You know, that kind of thing unites in a certain sense. Because if I have self-authority and God told me this and, and I know this and I had a special information come from God and so I, I'll have a certain following, a faddish following and I can sell lots of books. And so there's a certain uniting that happens. All the people who like Jesus calling follow me because I claim new revelation because the Bible wasn't good enough. And so there's a certain uniting that happens. Oh, Jesus calling is so awesome. So awesome. Are you part of the club? It's divisive. It's divisive because Jesus doesn't talk audibly to everybody and give new revelation. Self-authority instead of the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith. 
And now it's divisive because I'm in the camp over here that says, I think it's a once and for all delivered to the saints faith and the scripture is sufficient like it claims to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and got everybody else saying over here, you're just mean, you're just bad. And now you're picking on a woman who wrote a book. And now we're divided. What's going to unite us is the once and for all delivered to the saints faith with a bow on it Because Jesus' work is sufficient, Jesus' work is done, and we don't need 2.0, 3.0. He's the perfect, matchless, wonderful Savior, and He's given us the faith. All right. And so to criticize isn't divisive, you're trying to protect the unity that's around the faith. Don't mess with the faith. That's all. So I'm so thrilled that the common consensus, the common agreement, the the pulse and heartbeat would be a love for the Lord Jesus Christ at Omaha Bible Church. He's who we're for. And if we can unite around Him and remember that, then we'll have a common who we're against. And God might actually use us. And we'll have the joy of the Lord and we might actually have something to pass on to another generation, old or young, of believers. It's exciting. So contending, not contentious. It's what we're aiming for at least. Sometimes we cross the line, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. Thank you that you accept us even though we're weak and feeble and need to to know a lot more than we know. Thank you that you're patient with us because we learn and yet there's a gap between what we know and how we live. Thank you that you're mighty to save, wonderful to save. You're worthy of our praise, worthy of our thanksgiving and adoration. Uh, Please use us in the lives of those around us. Please use us in the lives of those who aren't around us. Uh, May we find ourselves uh, growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing it apply to the way we live. Um, Lord, give us good days, days where we remember how great Jesus is as a Savior and as a judge. In his name we pray, amen.